Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Two years ago, Carmen Maria Machado pushed the weird and the gothic even further into the mainstream with her debut short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and made her a Guggenheim Fellow. Her writing is in conversation with Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, Kelly Link, and all the ghosts and ghouls with whom they were in conversation. And now Machado is back with a haunted house of mirrors called In the Dream House, a memoir of a harrowing relationship told in the only way, Machado writes, she knew how. I broke the stories down because I was breaking down and didn't know what else to do. The list of chapters in the book reads like an introduction to literary tropes 101. Dream House as an exercise in point of view, Dream House as memory palace, as a stoner comedy, as word problem, as plot twist. Ultimately, it is, as one title puts it, an exercise in style, but one in which Machado considers all the territory surrounding the Dream House. Stereotypes about lesbian relationships, as safe or as hysterical, her religious adolescence, the insufficiency of the law, and the absence in the archives of stories that don't fit traditional demographics or even narratives of abuse. Carmen Maria Machado joins us in the studio to talk about her memoir, In the Dream House. Thanks so much for talking to me, Carmen. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so my first question is, I guess, the most obvious one, which is what did it feel like to move from short stories to memoir and... I guess, what was that shift in vulnerability like? Do you feel like there was a shift in vulnerability? Oh, definitely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the move from fiction, and I guess I wouldn't call it even a move because I feel like I, I'm now like returning to fiction. I'm like, I'm so sorry, baby. I didn't mean to stray. Like, I'm coming back, you know. It's just a one-time thing with the with the nonfiction. Um, but yeah, definitely it is an entirely different animal. Even though like the things I'm writing about in my memoir are like a lot of things that I've written about in short fiction as well. But there's just something about... Knowing there's nowhere to hide, because theoretically, like if, you know, if I wrote a short story that was fairly autobiographical and someone asked me about it, I could just be like, well, it's entirely fiction, so I don't really have anything to say about it, um, you know, in terms of its relationship to my life. But with nonfiction, you don't have that luxury. And so there is something very intense and very, yeah, very vulnerable about having a book like that in the world and, you know, not having that sheen of fiction or that like, protective sheath. I wonder, too, whether... I mean, are you worried about people going back and reading the short stories in a different lens? Because 
there is some definitely thematic overlap and even some of the images like I mean the, yeah the fridge I th- totally totally oh yeah it's inevitable yeah. I mean I think right actually somebody has asked me about the fridge they were like <laughs> was the fridge from the law and order story like the fridge from the, and I was like yeah that was yeah and you can see that and I think that's like interesting but it just is sort of you know it's different to write like about yourself having sex and like also just about yourself like being in a place of like deep pain I mean, that is like a really hard thing to experience and a really hard thing to write about. And it's very embarrassing. And so there's a lot of that emotion that I think comes along with it. Yeah. I mean, it it makes me wonder, you know, you talked about this sort of almost the veneer between the writer with fiction that doesn't mm-hmm. really exist for nonfiction. And that makes me want to ask about the structure of In the Dream sure. House, because in a way it feels like the structure Obviously, like, you know, you're building it up and you're in a way creating some boundaries. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, those boundaries enable you to just explode in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in writing in which the organizing intelligence is palpable. Like, that's always been very interesting to me. And I think it's for me what makes something a piece of art. And because, you know, it isn't just enough to just like regurgitate the stuff that happened to you. Like, anybody could do that. But like, trying to turn it sort of beautiful and interesting um, and to make it make sense in a way that makes sense to you. And I think, you know, for some people it might it might seem unnecessary or distracting and like I don't pretend that like everybody's going to get it or understand it. But it did, it did, it did give me this like framework to like do what my brain was doing. Like I think the problem was that for years I was trying to write the story in a direct way in like a straightforward manner and like it's just simply it doesn't exist that way in my head. And so it's really hard to write about that, you know, write about it in that way. Um, So yeah, so like once I got that structure figured out, like, I mean, the whole book just kind of fell out of me. I mean, like, if you know, it felt like, oh, I've like figured out the shape of this thing. So how did you hit upon the structure? Because it seems so obvious reading Mm -hmm. it and the way that there's this neat stacking up of epigraphs, the overture, the prologue, almost like bricks with each of these chapters coming in with a different motif or metaphor or genre or way of looking at the dream house did you come up with like a list of all of the dream house as whatever's and then fill them in yes and no so so for like the the more sort of like memoir bits like the bits that are just like here this happened and this happened and this happened those i usually would like write them and then try to figure out like what sort of thing i could attach to it if that makes sense Mm -hmm. because i was just like i'm just writing down like what happened like i want to get i want to make sure that this material is included and like this bit and this bit but then they also, in the other direction, would sort of serve as these prompts for me. So, for example, Dreamhouse is time travel. Like, that was one where I was like, I wonder, like, how how was this, like, time travel? And it became sort of more of a way of thinking about metaphor and about the metaphor of time travel and you know, ultimately the metaphor of the Novakov self-consistency principle, which is this idea in, in time travel um, about how you can't change – basically, you can't change the past if time travel were actually possible – you couldn't like alter events that have already happened, which is sort of how I was beginning to think about the process of writing that book and the process of like coming up to this very old version of myself. So it sort of depended on what it was that I was, and you know, and I also ended up like, there were a lot that I ended up combining. Like there were a lot where my editor was like, you have two of these, they're sort of similar. They could be combined under a single header and mm-hmm. you just got to like figure out a way to put them together. So like, you know, ultimately I ended up sort of fussing with it a lot. Um, and I mean, even though I, I think the final version of the book has like, I think it's 141 if I remember correctly, or it might be a little more than that, but it's like around there somewhere. But I had hundreds written down, like so many. I mean, I think one of the weirdest and 
most interesting ones is it I mean this relates to what you're talking about with time travel is the choose your own adventure chapter mm-hmm. in which that did feel that one felt really mean almost yeah <laughs> well that idea so that was actually really interesting so early on in the process I, I have somewhere in a notebook I have written down like in the middle of all my notes like gaslight the reader question mark <laughs> like underlined many times and like circled a whole bunch you know mm-hmm and I was constantly trying to figure out how to do it. Like I was like, I want to sort of do something in the book that creates the effect of gaslighting. And and at first I had this idea where I would like reference things that weren't real and do some other stuff. But I was always concerned that it would people would not understand what I was doing um, or that like it would just seem like I had forgotten my own book, you know, <laughs> as opposed to like as opposed to like a thing I was doing deliberately. So. And then at some point I was thinking about a choose your own adventure as a structure, which is a structure that other writers have used for various purposes. And I was really interested in thinking about how that could be done. And then I was like, you know, a choose your own adventure is actually a really appropriate because, you know, there's this illusion of choice. Right. But like, really, you have no choice at all. You have a choice to follow or not follow. You know, you're given two paths or maybe three. Um, You can get stuck. You can go in circles. Um, and so ultimately it became just like a very useful tool. And then once I started writing with you, like thinking like, I, you know, being laying out that chapter and sort of imagining, yeah, like, like what would the experience be of the reader, like encountering this chapter, including like the hidden bits. I don't know if you found. Yes, I yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. I did. I followed the rules. I didn't cheat. But then I went back then and you went like, back. there's pages I missed here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that I completely 100% stole from. Um, there's this writer, Kevin Brockmeyer, who I really love. And he has a really beautiful short story called The Human Soul is a Rube Goldberg device that was in one of his collections. And that's Choose Your Adventure structure. And he also has a hidden page. Um, I mean, it's to very different ends, but it's a really beautiful story. And I was really interested in that. And then I liked the idea of like, yeah, like scolding the reader for breaking the rules and just like sort of having like a generally hostile, like a mean, yeah, like I think saying it feels mean is accurate. Like sort of a hostile chapter that is not pleasant to encounter. Um, it feels like a game until it's not a game anymore. One of the reasons why it's funny to talk to you about the book now, I feel like you already did it. You already like talked about the book while I was reading well, right. the book. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, it felt to me a little bit like the way you would anticipate sort of arguments from someone about the relationship itself. Mm-hmm. You know, well, it's not battery. Sometimes relationships are just rough. Was the the way the structure sort of turns on itself and criticizes itself related to that, do you think? Well, you know, I, I mean, a lot of those criticisms, it was self-criticism, but also it was like things people said to me or like things that concerned me so I guess it was both from other people and from the self but yeah I wanted the book to anticipate people's concerns as best as possible and I recognize that like that's only like there are limits to that like I'm sure there are 10 million criticisms of the book that people that people have come up with already that I haven't even thought of and like that's fine because that's what it means to write a book right is you're having your half of the conversation and then like all the people who read the book get to have their half of the conversation but you don't have to necessarily participate (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> you already did your thing. Uh-huh. Well, the other reason the memoir kind of feels like a conversation to me is the literal aspect of the first person speaking to the second um, and sometimes vice versa because the narrative is split, roughly speaking, into passages told by either the first or the second person. Mm-hmm. But the divide isn't always so clean. Originally, I was like, I thought I figured it out. I was like, great. Okay. So we've got the past. We've got the present. We have this wise person looking back and, you know, 
speaking to the the you of the past. But then, you know, there's some slippages. And I'm really interested in those slippages Mm -hmm. and sort of how that perspective shift arose for you. Yeah. Um, So initially when I had written the first draft of the book, I had written mostly just the memoir part. So there wasn't all the sort of analysis and essays and research like that didn't really exist. And I had written the whole thing in second person. And my editor, my editor was sort of like, we need to talk about that at some point. Um, Because it's not that you can't do it. It's just that, you know, I want to make sure you're being purposeful about it. You're not sort of using it just as like a distancing technique um, because you're feeling so trauma. You know, we had to talk Mm -hmm. about that. And I was like, sure, no problem. So when I finally went back to the book, I was like, eh, I can just put it in first. And I began to like try to transition all the pieces into first. And I was actually really struggling because the they weren't hitting my ear right. Like when I read them out loud, I was like, this doesn't feel correct. Like the text was sort of resisting me. And so then I was thinking a lot about this novel that I love, which is We the Animals by Justin Torres, which is a novel that involves like a plural first voice, which is then shattered by an act of trauma and then becomes like split into like third and second and first and all this stuff. And so I was just like, well... I could just do that and have, yeah, this, like, I sort of confronting the you, which is, like, this past, you know, the you is, like, the past Carmen who's, like, on this continual hamster wheel of pain and is just sort of, like, running through this, these, this part, these bits over and over and over again. And the I is, like, having a dialogue with her or, or not a dialogue, but, like, a monologue towards her mm-hmm. um, because she can't listen because she can't answer back, you know. And so, yeah. And then there were, yeah, there are a few moments where I let, I let the you bleed through the I. I think one of the other things that made reading the book, which could have been a really isolating and lonely experience for me as a reader, and I can't imagine what it was like for you as a writer, um, was all the references, especially the ones looking outward to other works of art or historical or legal records of relationships that were just that tiny little bit like yours. Although... The difficulty that you had in finding them really speaks to this archival silence, this absence that you talk about. Um, And I think it turns the memoir into this quasi-genre that a lot of other writers have straddled, like Maggie Nelson, for instance. So what kinds of texts were you reaching for as you were writing, and what was the intended effect? Yeah, well, I, you know, Maggie Nelson is a big influence for me. I really love her work. I have, I had a lot of anxiety writing this book because I'm not a historian. I'm not an academic. I did not study English. I, you know, I do not have a PhD. Like, I, I was, even from the beginning, thinking the research stuff part of it would be me very much like stretching my, like leaving my comfort zone and like sort of stretching myself mm-hmm. beyond my normal capacity, um, which was like really interesting. So like, you know, I found myself just like neck deep in like I did some research stuff at the um, lesbian history archives in New York I um, I uh, you know did a lot of like legal like I was really interested in like came very interested in like the legal papers that were sort of written around this topic which were fascinating um, also like the sort of wealth of like you know, queer and feminist periodicals that sort of traced a lot of this dialogue and would occasionally have like issues sort of dedicated to this topic um, the topic of like queer domestic violence um, and like other stuff that other writers had written, there wasn't a ton, but there was some, you know, I watched a lot of documentaries. I watched, you know, I read a lot of, but the problem is that a lot of it hadn't been organized. So I think I was feeling very, especially out of my comfort zone because I was like, they should have, I, I was, I feel like it's like that scene in the movie Contact where Jodie Foster's like, they should have sent a poet. I'm like, they should have sent a historian. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I really am. 
really out of my comfort zone here. But it was just like a lot of a lot of different sources that I was pulling together. And then ultimately, I mean, at the end of the book, I wrote that sort of little afterward where I was like, okay, like I did the best I could. Here's all the stuff that I looked at. Please, someone else do it. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think knowing that there is an archive of some kind, even if it's not organized, can make you feel not alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Because one of the things that really spoke to me was Dreamhouse as Epiphany, which is just one sentence. Most forms of abuse are completely legal. And that, of course, goes for all forms of abuse. But there is that special wrinkle for abuse that happens with and between people who weren't even recognized as being possible. Mm -hmm. You know, Victorians not even bothering to outlaw relations between women because lesbianism was unimaginable. Mm -hmm. So like in the context of that fudgy, not exactly illegal, but still bad, murky territory of just people being bad to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, how does your story and how does queer abuse more broadly fit in? Well, I think it's it's in a few ways. I mean, people people get very fixated on legality as like a metric of badness, which I've always found very interesting because I'm like, you know, there's a lot. Okay, A, there's been a lot of human behavior that has been not morally wrong, that has been made illegal for all kinds of reasons. Alternately, there's a lot of human behavior that is not, like, bad human behavior that is not illegal and that is, you know, completely outside the framework of the law. And we we know, like, we know that the law is, like, insufficient for for most things, right? And really uneven. Totally. Unevenly applied. You know, we're constantly sort of shifting our understanding of, like, what things should or should not be illegal. You know, the law is so insufficient in every way. And I'm just really, really interested in, like, the ways in which, like, the way it's okay to say, like, no, the thing that happened to me was not illegal, but also, like, it was bad and it's okay for me to say, like, it was bad, it was not acceptable. I protest this. I think this also applies to not just, like, the question of, like, abuse, but also, like, Me Too, right? There's, like, a lot of stuff that's been described that's, like, super fucked up, right, and really bad, but also, like, not necessarily illegal and not necessarily, like, sexual harassment or rape or sexual assault. And, like, I think it's about acknowledging that, like, things can be very, very, very bad. They can be abusive without being illegal. And, like, those things are not at odds with each other. Like, it's just a a different, it's just, like, another sort of dimension of the experience. And I know, like, I've always known the law fails most people most times, but doing this book really brought home how that applies to, like, this specific kind of violence. And I think the law, too, can be such a crutch for people and something that you want to lean on because there are punishments laid out, you know? Mm-hmm. You have sort of statutes for, like, just how wrong something right. is. And that can be really not comforting exactly, but it gives you some kind of metric. Sure. And it's in the way that, you know, you're sort of inventing a form and a language to talk about queer intimate abuse in the same way that like in the murky areas of me too we're trying to imagine a way not just to talk about these gray areas say but also figure out what to do after Mm -hmm. you know if jail Mm -hmm. if prison isn't the right answer if losing your job isn't the right answer what is what does that look like Right, right right yeah um Exactly. And I think and I think that like, Me Too has really brought this into sharp focus mm-hmm. because, I mean, you can't put people in prison for like emotional abuse or like verbal abuse. You mm-hmm. know, I-, I do think there's something really important to me about just being like, it's OK to simply like be able to just say, like, this is a bad thing that has happened to me. I need people to acknowledge it. And I need it to th- there to be something us to think about what to do about this situation, whatever that looks like. And again, like that's not perfect and it's not easy, but 
I don't know. I don't know the answers. You know, like I don't I don't know what to do necessarily, but I just needed to say like this is what happened to me. And here are the ways in which the response to it was insufficient. There are links in the show notes for you to find Carmen Maria Machado's book in the Dream House, as well as links to some of the things we talked about, like Kevin Brockmeyer's Choose Your Own Adventure Stories, the original movie Gaslight that gave birth to the ever popular expression, and a few of the essays that Carmen cites in her afterward. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.